Hello, everyone, and welcome to the Offsec Podcast. I am your host, Falcon Spy. For this episode, we have Rob Reagan, a principal researcher at Bishop Fox. Rob, it's great to have you, and welcome to the Offsec Podcast. Uh, I know you and I had uh, an opportunity to speak a little bit before we started here, but for our listeners, can you tell us a little bit about yourself? Yeah, thank you so much for having me. I'm really excited to be here. Just a little bit about me. I have worked in offensive security professionally for 15 years or so. Uh, before that, it was uh, a hobby and passion. I didn't realize you could get paid to do it uh, before that. So as soon as I figured out that that was possible, I was uh, all in. And I am just really excited to uh, to you know get the chance to share uh, more about my experiences. Awesome. Uh, I know on your uh, biography or author page over at Bishop Fox, you you have some things mentioning kind of continuous security testing. I know that's something that you're really interested in. So that's kind of what we're going to have uh, in terms of most of our discussion here for this episode. So, um, you know, for those who are less informed, uh, what is involved for continuous security testing and why is it so important? It is something that I am passionate about and it really, to me, is just a necessary innovation that we need for not just security testing, but all testing. And I think other forms of software testing have already evolved to embrace this approach out of necessity. And I think uh, cybersecurity testing is catching up to what uh, quality assurance folks have been doing for a while for what uh, SREs, uh, site reliability engineers, have been doing for a while. And um, as security engineering uh, matures, it, it to me is the direction that some of the most innovative technology companies, security teams have already embraced. I think the there's folks at uh, Netflix and Amazon and really a lot of the big tech companies out there that have really pioneered this, even if they weren't calling it continuous security testing, they were doing it. Um, and so the patterns I saw there were really what made me see such an opportunity for penetration testers and red teamers to, to learn from what these teams were doing and apply it uh, in their everyday uh, activities. Yeah, so you'd kind of mentioned that a lot of organizations were already doing uh, kind of continuous security testing, but it wasn't, you know, that I guess that the the term wasn't coined uh, at the time. But uh, you know, what are what are some of the ways that new organizations can build out their their continuous security testing, especially if they're just starting to implement you know such tests? Great question. I think we have to learn from how uh, software engineering has evolved, and so. Um, I was a software engineer, software developer, a web developer um, early on in my career. And I you know, got to firsthand see the evolution from waterfall style development practices into agile style uh, development practices. And I really got to see how impactful uh, continuous integration and continuous deployment was for engineering teams. Um, I remember when I was a software engineer at a company that was actually making security products, we were making dynamic analysis scanners and static analysis scanners for uh, web application testing. We had about an 18 month release cycle for the product. And that probably sounds crazy. This, this great, mind you, was about 14 years ago. So uh, that wouldn't really work today. I think we all know that's too slow to release updates to a product. And um, I think I was uh, in my early 20s and I realized that back then too. I was like, this is just too slow. This, we, we wait until we have packaged all of these features into this, this bigger version release. And then we, we, we spend all this time testing it and, and um, then we release it. But our competition, I noticed, had started releasing quarterly. Every quarter they had a, a release milestone. And I, I realized, I was like, wow, they're catching up to us in feature set. And if they keep going at this pace and we keep staying at our pace, they're going to pass us up. And they did. <laughs> but uh, I, uh, you know, 
saw the writing on the wall and realized I didn't really want to be a software engineer uh, anymore at that company in particular. And I actually got a taste uh, for doing penetration testing at that company. And I was like, wow, people will pay me to do this all day, every day. Yes, please sign me up. And I, I got the uh, fortunate opportunity to see inside so many different companies and so many different size and complexity and maturity of companies. And I got to see everything from like fortune 100 uh, uh, companies and the style that, that they take to, to developing and releasing products and services. And I got to see in some of, uh, even startups, even some of the, uh, tech startups, whenever they were really small, I was working on doing security testing for them. And then they're like household name brands now, but I got to see it when they were like a few dozen people, like in a small office. Um, the, the thing that we know works is, uh, continuous integration, continuous deployment, agile project management styles for adapting and changing and working on whatever is the highest priority to keep a constant flow of improvement happening. And as I compared and contrasted this to what was a 20-some-year-old style of doing penetration testing, which uh, I would say was really following like a waterfall-style uh, approach of first we must scope a project and we must send scoping surveys and we must ask for IP address ranges and we must ask for lines of code count and API endpoints and and then we must review that information and come up with an estimation of effort and then we must uh, uh, test it for two people two weeks or whatever we determined the right level of effort was and then um, deliver a report and then uh, the, the, some issues are fixed, and then maybe we do remediation testing, and then maybe we go away until next year. <laughs> um, I realized that isn't cutting it, and I think we all knew that wasn't cutting it, but um, I think continuous security testing is just innovating on that approach to get it more in line with the speed and the efficiency of continuous integration and continuous deployment practices that engineering has adopted a, a, a long time ago at this point. I mean, I think most organizations have had a digital transformation and they've embraced that style of engineering. So CI, CD really also needs CS, which is continuous security. And that is what, over the last few years, what I've just really dedicated my um, uh, research efforts into and my, um, it's really what I'm passionate about. Yeah, so you, you kind of brought up uh, CI/CD, and then you know, uh, I guess what you're saying is uh, CS in there. So, like, at what at what point do you feel CS should be involved within the CI/CD pipeline? Is that more towards right before they go to deploy? Is it every step of the way? Like, where? What do you think is a good balance in terms of CS for the CI/CD pipeline? Uh, there's one thing I've learned uh, over the over. Um my years doing this is uh, there's not one size fits all. And there's not one answer that I could give to that question that would apply to every organization and every situation and every product. Um, I, I think it really does take a bit of a tailored approach and a, a evaluation on a case by case basis of what's right for what team and, and uh, what level of maturity they're at. Um, I do think ideally, and if we're talking about um, in, in an ideal world, they're a, a very mature um, and uh, if possible, getting it into as many steps or as many um, aspects of the workflow in development uh, is ideal. And then, and, and I, so I would say, yes, every step of the way is is what would be um most beneficial but we we have to really meet uh organizations and and development and engineering teams where they're at and be very pragmatic and very realistic and and so some it might be easier to start early in the design phase and do some some efforts there some it might be easier to start after it's already deployed to production and work your way back so maybe start at both ends and work, work your way to, <laughs> to the middle. And, and uh, uh, I, so I, I wish there was an easy answer to that. 
Um, well, I guess the easy answer is it depends. <laughs> yeah, I figured uh, it depends is a great is a uh, going to be the the most suitable answer here. But you know, uh, along those lines, you know, of where it depends, and kind of just talking about where CS should be in the CI/CD pipeline. You know, what are some tools that can help with uh, performing the continuous secu- uh, security testing for the CI/CD pipeline? And you know, what are what tools should someone who's looking to get into into continuous security testing look to familiarize themselves with? I think that a really good way to think about it is if you're starting from scratch with this concept, getting a really good inventory of what you have and what you need to protect is always step one. So being able to discover what you need to test and what is at least in some shared responsibility model part of the the security team's testing targets is is what is really step one there are some great tools that are open source for discovering all the fully qualified domain names that exist for an organization Uh, so getting a good sense of ownership uh, if it's a, a small startup or a smaller or medium-sized company, this may be a bit of an easier task because they may have um, a smaller subset of, uh, of domains that they've registered and, and assets that uh, both their customers and their employees interact with on a day-to-day basis. And getting a good sense of what are all of the subdomains and all of that there may be system-to-system communication for in their their development processes. And they may have um, their production environments, but they also may have staging environments and dev environments and QA environments and really expanding your idea of what the attack surface is and expanding the notion of what, uh, I, I really like to think of this concept of there's in modern infrastructure, there's a lot of things that the organization doesn't fully own and operate, but there's a shared responsibility in securely configuring it. And what I mean by that is uh, what is uh, tired and antiquated as an approach to offensive security testing is just asking what IP addresses do you own? Because modern infrastructure and modern applications aren't built on the IP addresses that you own. They're cloud hosted. They're on infrastructure as a service uh, providers or platform as a service providers. And employees don't only interact with services on the IP space that an organization owns they use SaaS services. Their sales team is probably using Salesforce and they're, uh, maybe they're using Twilio for a platform to do text messages or emails through SendGrid. It is irresponsible to say that, oh, the only things in scope are the IP addresses we own because that's just not what the true attack surface is. And um, starting there, I think, is a, a really good way to... Um, get a better definition of what is even necessary to test. Yeah, for sure. I think, I think a lot of people, even, even when it comes to some uh, pen tests, a lot of people, I think, just start to think at the time, like, uh, what are the IP addresses rather than, you know, what could be, what services might be running on those uh, in addition to just the IP address. Cause uh, as you said, there's things that run on these different cloud providers, the, the SAS, the IaaS, um, yeah, in, in some research that uh, uh, I've done with some of my colleagues, um, I really, uh, a good friend Oscar and I, uh, who's a colleague of mine for a long time now, um, he and I did presented at Black Hat in 2020, um, and we released an open source tool called Smog Cloud, uh, which was based on some research we did to inventory what are all the different API endpoints in AWS that can be used to describe services that are exposed to the internet. And in AWS, it's really interesting because each team and each native service um, kind of runs like its own little startup. And that enables them to be fast and agile and release lots of changes. But there is actually no standardization between them <laughs> on even the naming conventions of the APIs that you would use to answer the question, what in my AWS environment is exposed to the internet? Um, so we thought that that was a really interesting problem to try to solve. and. Uh, I don't think we even scratched the surface of actually solving it. There's a lot more work to do there. But um, 
one of the interesting realizations that we had was whenever we did call some of these API endpoints and we did get lists of like, here's every elastic search instance in an, in an environment that's facing the internet. And maybe it doesn't even have uh, a fully qualified domain name that matches to it, but you can get the, the IP address for it, but that might be ephemeral and it might change next week. Uh, so um, we also, we, we observed that if you request those AWS services by uh, uh, DNS uh, name versus by IP address, you actually get different responses. Um, so we, we found, uh, some vulnerabilities with like Samsung TV plus in our research that if you requested it by the IP address, it said like access denied and, and you, you couldn't get to it. But if you requested it by the fully qualified domain name, it let you have unauthenticated access to Samsung TV plus channels. And so you don't even need to own a Samsung TV and you can just watch all of the TV channels that they stream through their products, uh, without a password. And, uh, uh, that was just, I think, by the nature of how those native services um, are virtually hosted. And uh, this is another complexity with modern infrastructure, just all the different virtual hosts that can exist behind an IP address uh, make it behave differently if you request it by FQDN versus IP address. Uh, so Rob, yeah, you're kind of talking about AWS and some of the API testing, and I know we're going to go off on a little bit of a tangent from where we would like to be, but... I know uh, Bishop Fox had just released a tool called CloudFox that does a lot of uh, cloud-based pen testing and checks um, and API checks against AWS and GCP and Azure. So, um, you know, some of those tools that you were talking about just previously, uh, was that rolled into, into CloudFox itself? Yes. Uh, basically, um, uh, Seth Art and Carlos, who, who run our uh, cloud penetration testing methodology, had developed an open source uh, tool called CloudFox. And this is something we'd actually been using internally for a while. And this also uh, really goes in line with how we uh, needed to support the methodology that is required to adequately do um, cloud penetration testing. What, what we mean by cloud penetration testing is really just testing of the internal VPC of a cloud environment, whether it's AWS, Azure, GCP, it, we, we play out scenarios in our, our testing where we would, um, probably the most common one is an assumed breach of a application workload in an AWS environment. What happens if, you know, maybe hopefully not, but let's say like a few months from now, the next log4j style issue uh, happens and opportunistic attackers are scanning the internet looking to get a shell and they get uh, um, an application remote code execution on um, a workload that's running on an EC2 instance or running on an ALB in, in AWS. What could the attacker do to pivot from there that uh, the organization and the security team responsible for defending that application could do to uh, better monitoring of that type of incident and that type of uh, attacker behavior of pivoting out of that uh, workload into other aspects of the environment. Maybe there's opportunities for improving uh, um, principle of least privilege and uh, locking down what that application actually only needs access to and what controls are in place to, to really prevent the attacker from pivoting. And so a lot of our analysis um, comes uh, from that type of a test. And CloudFox helps us answer those questions of um, querying the metadata uh, uh, service uh, in AWS to actually describe what exists and answer um, questions that will help us more quickly connect the dots and um, understand how we can either uh, escalate privileges horizontally or vert uh, vertically. And um, uh, it, it really helps us uh, report on better analysis and make better recommendations. Nice. Yeah, I remember seeing uh, the announcement about CloudFox coming out, but um, uh, returning back from our tangent, but still somewhat on topic, you know, we were, we were talking about tools for the most part and CloudFox being one of them. Um, but returning back to continuous security testing, you know, what are some of the tools that you've helped develop or deployed? And what are some interesting bugs that you might have caught with those tools that you've either developed yourself or deployed? Yeah, so... Once we've done discovery, uh, we have often um, 
really used other tools to enrich the discovery data. So uh, having all the data about like what exists whether, uh, in the attack surface, whether that's internet facing attack surface or application attack surface or internal network or, or cloud environment, uh, private VPC attack surface, uh, we wanna always then enrich that data to be able to understand what's running there. And so we'll often use tools uh, to fingerprint the tech stack of the different services that are available. Uh, we'll use things like uh, Wappalizer to answer the question, what is uh, the, if it's an application, HTTP service, what, what technology is being used here? What, what uh, CMS or what plugins or uh, what is uh, powering this, this web application? Maybe it's telling us the application framework is Django or maybe it's Drupal or uh, WordPress. And just knowing that, can help you steer your attention if you're hunting for certain issues or if you're hunting for um, certain classes of vulnerabilities. We'll also use uh, CPEs. So being able to um, uh, use uh, network scanners and get details on what, uh, like Nmap makes it easy to, to uh, enumerate um, like what, what platform is being used on a service and fingerprint the OS or fingerprint the version of uh, what of the SSH server or the FTP server or whatever is available there. And then we can correlate those CPEs to vulnerabilities. Um, this really uh, gives us a standardized way to describe what is going on in an environment or on an attack surface. Um, from there, we will actually uh, leverage automation. We've built some of our own um, uh, techniques for analyzers and we'll often instrument uh, uh, containers that have tools of whether it's a custom script or a custom tool we've built and uh, scale up running multiple containers so that we can get the job done faster. I think one of the most important things um, to that's gonna help us scale and actually deliver continuous security is enabling uh, testers to have more resources and to have the same type of resources that advanced like uh, SREs and advanced uh, engineers have um, to do their own maintenance and tasks and testing. Uh, security engineers need this too. What I mean by that is like, it's hard to do all the work that you need to do as a penetration tester with just one laptop or one Cali box. Um, I think that uh, some of the open source tools that uh, I admire and I thought were really um, making this available to the masses were things like Axiom. Uh, so Ben Bidmead's uh, Axiom project uh, makes it really trivial for one pen tester to spin up a thousand nodes on DigitalOcean or AWS and, and run um, a, a tool uh, and divide the targets list evenly between those thousand nodes and just get the answer to your question a lot faster of what, you know, maybe you're running a vulnerability scanner, or maybe you're running um, Nmap and, and you just want to get the job done. Uh, I think that is a really powerful, uh, freely available open source tool. I also think that uh, like project discovery and Nuclei uh, uh, in particular is a really powerful example of a community that, that has built uh, an, um, a modern vulnerability scanner that is very powerful and has workflow functionality and has a lot of capabilities that make it easy to rapidly identify indicators of vulnerability in an attack surface and then respond to those indicators of vulnerability. Um, and really then the, uh, the penetration tester can focus on what is most interesting first if they have so much work to do. Um, you can create automations that run on a schedule uh, using these types of technologies and uh, that type of cron job that's saying rerun this on a higher frequency. And, and honestly, continuous security is really just about increasing frequency of analysis. Um, I like the joke uh, that, uh, you know, we used to just do annual pen tests once a year. And you could say that that uh, is the same frequency that the earth rotates around the sun. It's just that one, once a year uh, frequency. But if we can get to higher frequencies, we have, I'd say, moved the needle and improved the situation for security teams to be able to react uh, more quickly and hopefully find and fix issues before malicious threat actors do. And uh, that's, that's really, I think, at the crux of what we're trying to do.
Nice. Yeah. Um, I mean, you had brought up a lot of different tools, but like, was there anything in particular that, you know, these tools had found that uh, you or your peers while working an assessment um, was just unexpected or, or anything that you just, uh, I guess. I don't know. Yeah. <laughs> I don't know if un unexpected is, is how I feel about it. I think I've, I've seen enough at this point doing like penetration testing and red teaming for so long that, I'm very rarely surprised. I think that the types of issues that we're able to find using these techniques kind of tend to fall into a handful of categories, um, really five categories. And uh, I'd say they all align with the Verizon data breach report of how real breaches happen. They're either uh, vulnerable software, like a missing patch. Uh, they are a misconfiguration. They're a sensitive info leak. It's a application vulnerability, or it's a weak password either like default or easily guessable. Um, and, and those match up to really uh, how breaches happen. And I think that uh, some of the tools I mentioned are really um, ways to uh, uh, automate what I, what I consider a way to just bring indicators of vulnerability to red teamers and pen testers so that they can use their expertise to exploit them or confirm maybe it's not exploitable, maybe there's some mitigating risk that it's not really, maybe it's benign, maybe it's not actually a high set or high priority issue, or maybe it's a P1 um, after you do the post-exploitation and actually see what you have access to. Maybe you have access to all the social security numbers or all the credit card numbers or all the PII in that application because of that issue. And I, I do think that it's interesting that um, blue teams actually are a lot more mature when it comes to automation, then I'd say red teams, uh, some, some, not all of them. <laughs> um, uh, I, I don't want to make any blanket statements like that, but uh, I think the most secure, or, or sorry, the most mature blue teams, and by proxy of that, the most secure, have created really efficient ways to bring indicators of compromise to their attention. And they may have SOAR platforms, and they may have all these other tools and, and techniques that they've built uh, which really are designed to trigger an event. And then they have a playbook for that event, especially if it's an event they see over and over and over again. They have, uh, you know, maybe it's a phishing attack or maybe it's a malware in their environment or maybe it's um, uh, uh, abnormal behavior in their cloud environment. They have a playbook. And maybe if they're really mature, the first few steps of that playbook are, are automated or at least semi-automated to gather other additional metadata information and give context to the issue. But eventually a SOC analyst gets fingers on keyboard, looks at all that information that was collected and makes some decisions on it. And that decision is usually at the end of the day, either this is benign, false positive, don't really care, or this is a high priority issue and we have to take some action to fix this and um, contain and eradicate the threat and, and really run a full incident response. I think that red teams and penetration testers and offensive security professionals can learn a lot from that and take a very similar approach to design systems and automation that is helping them do continuous security testing. And instead of hunting for indicators of compromise, hunt for indicators of vulnerability. And whenever the indicator of vulnerability automation triggers an event, bring that to your tester's attention and put it in the backlog. Maybe there's many of them <laughs> to look at, but come up with a agile project management style of uh, maybe everything's in the backlog. You do some grooming of the backlog. You run a sprint of which ones are the highest priority. You close out the issues that are benign, but you turn the ones that are confirmed exploitable into findings that you report to the engineering teams. And then you run another sprint next week doing the same thing. <laughs> and I think that if we shift to that style of delivering penetration testing, we will be able to keep up much better than if we, rather than, you know, the old waterfall methodology. All right. Um, so I know we've been talking a lot about continuous uh, security, uh, continuous te uh, security testing rather. Um, you know, what are, what are some of your other passions within the InfoSec field, um, you know, if you had to pick something else? 
I think that threat intelligence and threat hunting and studying what known real criminal actors or nation state actors or espionage uh, threats are doing is fascinating. I think that um, there are very few researchers and I think say very few organizations that are doing a what I would consider excellent job of this but when you see it you're just like wow uh that is very impressive because it's like uh you're basically like a cyber sleuth or detective or the the, the whole concept of uh like threat hunting or or thrunting for short as I've, I've heard is uh very fascinating because it helps us understand what our real adversaries are doing and I think for too long, um, offensive security testing professionals have focused on what they thought was important, but sometimes that doesn't match up to what real threat actors are doing. And I think we are seeing more and more of a shift to paying attention uh, to the real problems that we have. And that might be something like uh, account takeover attacks or bots that are... Um, making scams on e-commerce or retail sites more efficient. And some of these uh, things that happen in um, uh, cyber attacks have uh, uh, influence into like the kinetic and, and, and uh, physical world. Um, I, I was just learning uh, recently about bots that were scraping the inventory of certain stores so that uh, they could find where the most expensive items were in stock. So they could send people in person to rob that store uh, as a criminal gang activity. And that to me is like, wow, I uh, am very familiar with bots and, and what bots do, but to be able to, from a uh, security perspective, tie together the physical security of that store to what's happening on their website, their corporate website uh, is, is fascinating. And, and I think more and more we have to, um, as offensive security professionals team up with the people that are doing that type of threat intelligence to just get ahead of the real problems that matter. Yeah, for sure. I mean, actually, I was a little bit surprised when you're like, oh, to actually rob the store. I was thinking, oh, they're just going to go there, purchase those items for for cheap or whatever, and then scalp them and for for way more in terms of markup. But yeah, um, I guess there's many different ways you can take that. But um, all right. Uh, so... You've been in the field now for quite some time. Uh, you know, what's something that you wish you knew or that you can go back in the past and tell yourself uh, that you think would really help yourself within the within the field? Oh, wow. That's a great question. I, I was actually just joking uh, earlier today with some some coworkers um, about uh, how badly I feel about some of the recommendations that I've made in pen test reports over the years because I had very little appreciation for how unrealistic they were uh, to actually, or how difficult it is to achieve them. Like, uh, yeah, just uh, just uh, do input validation on all your parameters in your application. Like, as if that's an easy thing to do. Like, I, I think that um, I have so much more appreciation with the experience that I have now and just how much time I've spent talking to customers or people that have been in the shoes uh, that, that receive these types of reports, it is much easier said than done for pretty much every tactical and strategic recommendation that, that uh, I've ever made <laughs> during a pen test or a red team. And so I have a, a lot more appreciation and I wish I could tell my younger self to really and I, I think I thought I was doing this, but I, I wasn't doing a good enough job of it. And and I wish I spent more time researching more valuable recommendations and more pragmatic recommendations and really spending the time to understand where a organization was at from a maturity level and tailoring my recommendations to meet them where they're at. Because everyone has budget constraints, resource constraints, time constraints, and to just give generic blanket recommendations isn't really helpful. And, and I wish I, I wish I had a better appreciation for that sooner. 
And um, for anyone that's uh, listening, um, you know, putting yourself in the shoes of your audience for your offensive security test is a underappreciated skill. And uh, it really is something that you have to develop with practice. Yeah, for sure. I know a lot of our students who are looking to take one or many of our certifications or just people who aren't even looking to take our certifications and trying to enter the field, they they struggle with actually writing these these pen test reports. So, um, you know, it seems like, uh, you know, that's one of the things that you would like to go back and tell uh, tell your former self about um, just to make things a bit more realistic. But, you know, for people who who have very little experience writing these pen test reports or or is just starting out, you know, what do you feel is the most important uh way to structure these reports or what what do you feel is the the best way uh for the these new assessors red teamers pen testers whatever they may be to to really get their their message across to their client that they're delivering this report to great question i think some things that they can do is know your audience like really know who your audience is because sometimes you have to adapt how you're communicating from um, technical detail to business uh, awareness Um, uh, an executive a c-level a director a vp even may not care about the technical details or impressiveness of your report finding as much as you think they do they may only care about the impact you were able to demonstrate and they may care more more about your recommendations than the technical impressiveness of the finding. Know your audience. And and by what I mean of that is like, what is their maturity and what, where are they at and what are they ready to actually feasibly achieve? Sometimes making mitigation recommendations instead of only remediation recommendations can be really helpful because sometimes it's not easy to go fix and make that change because it's a lot of work. It's going to take six months. It's going to take a team of people and they have to go get all this approval and buy in to make that big of a change. What what can they do to mitigate the issue in the meantime? Sometimes is uh, maybe it's putting a Band-Aid on the problem, but maybe a Band-Aid would help stop the bleeding a little bit. I think that they also should see everything as a draft for the, you, like at Bishop Fox in particular, all of our reports often go to like version eight, version nine of revisions internally before a customer sees them. Um, and it, it's impressive if a new, new pen tester on our team can get less than version six uh, before they get a report out the door in their first few months. It's also important, I'd say, to have open communication while you're developing and writing that report. Get your customer involved if you're not sure. Check your assumptions. Check your assumptions on what you think is true and what you think matters because they may not be accurate. And it's okay to ask and it's okay to have preliminary conversations and it's okay to deliver a report as a draft and say, we'd like your feedback before we finalize this. And it's not done often enough because usually there's no no time. It's always a matter of I ran out of time. And I think that's also a byproduct of us doing this point in time testing. I think that if we embrace continuous testing more, you're never done. So it's always the draft. Everything is open-ended. There's no deadline. We're doing this for the foreseeable future continuously. And I think that that sets us up for success because we can always iterate and improve on what we think we know and we can check our assumptions continuously. Yeah, uh, it's, you brought up some really good points, and um, you know, I, I brought up our, our students looking to to get certifications or even get degrees within the field. So, do you feel that a degree in cybersecurity, or information security, or even certifications provided by providers are are necessary or required for field? You know, how how helpful do you believe? you know, these degrees certifications to be? I think it's really exciting that they even exist. Um, They were just starting to exist whenever I was in university and it was early days. And I actually took one of the first classes that our university ever offered in security 
I actually uh, wasn't allowed to take it because I, I was like uh, a freshman and they, it was, you had to have like all these prerequisites. And I, I like begged and pleaded to the professor. I was like, I already read three out of the five books that are assigned. Like, can I, can I please take this course? And, and they made an exception for me. And um, I think that everyone learns in a different way. Um, I don't think it's, requ- I don't think it's required. So to, to bluntly ask, answer your, or bluntly answer your question, I don't think it's required. Um, we have some of the best hackers on our team have high school diplomas uh, and that's it. They dropped out of school. I'm not saying that it, everyone should do that. Uh, everyone learns differently. Some people need the guidance, the curriculum to follow. Some people uh, thrive on achieving certifications. Other people are self-taught and other people um, learn better through hands-on experience and practice. And maybe an internship that they get is the best school they could ever have. Um, I think that there are so many opportunities to do things like bug bounty and to do things like uh, CTFs uh, that are much more prominent and available probably in your backyard or your town if you look for them. I think that finding a group of people it really helped me. I started going to 2,600 meetings when I was in high school and finding like-minded people that I could just talk to on IRC and meet up with in person on a regular basis. And we were giving presentations to each other. And um, I was like, I may give a presentation on SQL injection and another person gave a presentation on cracking software and bypassing licenses. I learned more in those sessions than I did in school on hacking. Um, but I learned more from work. I learned more from actually working in IT, doing help desk, doing network admin, doing sysadmin, doing debugging of software, doing QA testing, doing web development, um, doing uh, uh, development on security products. Uh, and, and I actually worked in quality assurance. And my job at the security product company was to write vulnerable web apps so that see if our products could find the issues. And I got to learn all the wrong ways to write web apps. <laughs> And so that was invaluable in really helping me understand the, the, the security space. And uh, I'm very appreciative for the people I've met and the friends I've made and what they've taught me. Um, so it's not required. And I think that uh, you need to find like-minded people to mentor you and just uh, rub shoulders with. And um, that, you can you can certainly find opportunities in the ghost field by doing that. I like your approach on it because I, I I don't believe that degrees or certifications are really required for a field either. I, I do think they can be helpful, um, but to, to each and everyone's own. Um, I know. Go ahead. I'll add I'll add one more thing on that because I actually have a colleague that um, didn't know anything about penetration testing but was also like very educated. Like he has multiple degrees. He has multiple master's degrees from like international universities. So he's obviously the type of person that seeks higher education. And he actually set out to get his OSCP. Um, and he was working as a consultant, but not doing penetration testing. And so he was rubbing shoulders with all these penetration testers and learning from them and being exposed to what we do. And he actually got his OSCP and uh, failed the test uh, in the first try, uh, but just which I think many people do. And, and it's actually one of the only certifications I have respect for because it's pr- practical hands-on test. It's not a multiple choice or true or false test. It is prove that you can do this with time uh, uh, constraint. And, and so he, I, I don't know if he failed more than once, but I know that he definitely failed, but got back up and kept trying. And um, he eventually got it and he's a very good penetration tester now. And But he, he basically had to, go through the training and, and teach himself and take the certification. And um, I do think that that worked really well for him, but he's that type of person that was already seeking like higher education and seeking these classes and forced himself to, to train and pass the test. Yeah. I, I, I actually failed twice before I finally had passed my OCP certification, but um, so yeah, I, as I was saying earlier, yeah, I, I don't think they're required myself uh, when it comes to degrees or certifications. I think they could be helpful, but I think the really great thing about the InfoSec field is as long as you're a passionate individual or someone who really wants to 
to learn or be in the field, um, you're going to do what it takes to succeed and you'll, you'll get there one way or another, whether you have to get a certification, you get a degree, you find a mentor or you find like-minded individuals, like you'll, you'll get there as long as you're, you're determined. So I, I think all those points that you were talking about earlier were really, really a great point. And yeah, I don't, I don't think they're required either. Um, but you had also had touched about, uh, touched upon like bug bounties and things like that. So like, you know, outside of these degrees and certifications, you know, a lot of people feel that they are required, uh, I shouldn't say required. They feel that they need to have some kind of published CVE or some kind of published exploit or they're, uh, participating in bug bounty, uh, you know, for someone that holds a number of different publications because you spoke at Black Hat and RSA, um, and I believe DEF CON, if I remember correctly, uh, again, do you feel that having any of these are, are necessary or beneficial for someone who's looking to, to join the field or, or even get a job within the field? I think creating a portfolio of accomplishments that demonstrate your passion for the field is very helpful. Um, I've actually mentored some folks that, uh, I, and I helped them with this. I, I think that their GitHub spoke more to their skills than anything else. They um, released open source tools. They released uh, uh, projects. They did presentations, but it was really like the way they designed their GitHub page. Um, immediately upon looking that at that, made me realize like they'll have no problem getting a job in cybersecurity. Uh, and they, they, they basically right out of school, got a job as well, they interned during school and then got a job as a security researcher and they are working on really cool innovations. Um, and basically self-taught themselves Python and completely like self-admit that they're a noob and get stuck all the time, but just get help and figure it out and persist. I think that persistence is the only ingredient. You don't actually have to be super smart. I think just if you don't give up and try different things until you accomplish what you're trying to accomplish, even if that means you have to put your head through the wall in the process, uh, is, is really all it takes. Um, but I think having a portfolio that uh, does uh, highlight your passions and, and what you've created and what you've contributed to the community is an, uh, a passport that's better than you know what's on your resume if in most cases um, to, to getting you uh, better opportunities in the infosec uh, field. Yeah, I think, I think anything can help, but it's not, it's not necessary. I, it, a lot of people just usually always ask, I, I don't have a CVE or I'm not doing bug bounties. Like, can I, can I get into the field? So I think, I think others will appreciate hearing that it's not, a necessity. Um, yeah, I don't have a CV. Um, I have done bug bounties, but I'm not really public about them. Um, I don't think that any of those things are necessary. Um, but it, it really does depend on what you want to do. Um, obviously, to differentiate yourself from all the other candidates that are applying for these jobs, it does help to have something that makes you stand out. And it doesn't have to be any one of these things, but it just has to be something that demonstrates concretely what your passion is. Because I think you can put things on your resume, but like telling people versus showing people is a big difference, right? Um, uh, you can say anything in a resume, you can write uh, anything, or you can say anything in an interview as well. But if you can show people, I did this and I accomplished this, whatever that is. Um, people believe in you a lot more and are probably much more willing to give you an opportunity uh, for like a new job uh, in the field. Yeah, for sure. Uh, earlier, we had kind of touched upon some of your passions outside of continuous security testing uh, within the InfoSec field. So what are some of your passions outside of InfoSec? Uh, you know, what, what do you enjoy doing when you're not working? Uh, probably my favorite hobby is uh, like motorsports related. I, um, I like cars. I think mechanical engineering is fascinating. I like studying uh, uh, how those systems work. 
I am not good with my hands. And I realized that at a young age, so I don't actually know how to work on cars or anything like that. Um, well, I think in my mind, I, I, I know in theory how to work on them. I'm not actually good at it. Uh, I tend to break a lot of things that I touch, which is why I found this <laughs> uh, line of work. Um, so uh, I started like going to the track when I was 18 years old and doing like high speed driver's education courses. And um, I love all things speed and, and, um, yeah, to me, it's almost like a different way, a uh, different form of risk management. It's uh, how do I push myself and the uh, vehicle to the limit uh, with safely still managing the risk of not crashing. And uh, that that's that's my favorite hobby outside of computers. Awesome. Uh, we're we're just about done, but uh, you know, for our listeners out there. What's something that you would recommend as a useful tip uh, to share for those looking to join the InfoSec field or even become more specialized within security, uh, continuous security testing and automation? I really implore folks to just open their mind and try to change their mindset, perhaps from what they've seen even done yesterday uh, for, for offensive security testing always be asking yourself what the problem is that we're trying to solve and free your mind to innovate on it. Uh, I think if you can teach yourself at least how to script and how to uh, code in some capacity um, or how to use the open source tools and frameworks that make it easy to, to do this, uh, you can create automations that make yourself 10 times more uh, impactful and valuable in, in your testing. And uh, I, I would just implore people to keep innovating um, on, on the approach that you had yesterday. All right. Uh, that pretty much wraps up all the questions that we had for, for today. But is there is there anything you'd like to leave some of our listeners with, Rob? If there are listeners that are, are trying to get into the field or are just trying to advance, um, their, their role in the field and there is someone out there that you admire or someone out there that um, you're interested in learning from, I, I would really encourage you to reach out and send uh, just a really well-crafted question or message. And, and I think you'd be pleasantly surprised at how often you'll get a response that, that uh, you know, they appreciate you um, reaching out to them and, and they'd be happy to help you or mentor you in some way. Um, I'd, I'd say more often than not, that's going to be the case. And so don't be, don't be shy to do that. Um, I'm always really glad that I've done that, um, to people that I wanted to interact with. And, um, it, it's definitely opened some doors. So I would say, uh, just, uh, just reach out to who you want to engage with in the community. Um, uh, they're not that scary, probably. They're probably just really nice people if you uh, if you give them a chance. Awesome, yeah, I I I agree. Finding mentors or people are, are super helpful. But thank you, Rob Reagan. Uh, thank you again. I know uh, we've taken some of your time, and hopefully, a lot of our listeners enjoyed you know learning about continuous security testing. Uh, to our listeners out there, thank you for taking the time to listen to this episode. We hope you enjoyed it and were able to gain some value from it as well. Be sure to check out the Offensive Security website for more info on similar topics and courses by going to offensive-security.com. Thanks again.